and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the policies, events and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we're going to talk about catastrophe, the history of all sorts of different catastrophes, not just pandemics, but other disasters from the geological to the geopolitical, from the biological to the technological. Why do some societies and states respond to catastrophes so much better than others? Why do some fall apart? Most hold together and a few emerge stronger. Why does politics sometimes cause catastrophe? These are some of the questions which today's guest, Neil Ferguson, tries to answer in his wonderful new book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. It's a real treat to have a guest who paints on such a a broad canvas. Neil's not just a a brilliant historian. He's mastered so many other different branches of knowledge, from the science of networks to the intricacies of global finance. He's a best-selling author and award-winning filmmaker. He holds posts at Stanford and Harvard universities and has a knack of, of putting the current moment into a broader historical and intellectual framework. Thank you very much for joining, Neil. It's great to be with you, Mark. So maybe we could start with the sort of general idea of the book. Maybe you could give us what your taxonomy of doom looks like. Well, I've been thinking a lot about doom and disaster, not just because that's what Scotsmen do, but also because I was conscious prior to 2020 that we had developed a rather strange relationship to it. On the one hand, as so often in history, we are fascinated by a particular end of the world scenario. That climate change, certainly within the global elite, had become the number one topic of conversation, the pretty much the only item on the agenda at Davos or Aspen or any of these places. And yet at the same time, I felt we weren't thinking at all clearly about the realities of our individual mortality. In fact, the United States is a country that that doesn't even talk about people dying, people here pass, which to British ears sounds like something you do with a football. So here was this disconnect, great obsession with with the end of the world, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez telling us it was 12 years away and and a sort of personal feeling of immortality. So I thought it's time to think a little bit about how the world ends. And I was going to write a history of the future, a history of all the dystopian apocalyptic endings in, in literature. This is the sort of bread and butter of science fiction. And then an actual disaster started to happen. And sitting around in Davos in January 2020, surrounded by people talking about climate change, when it was obvious to me that a pandemic was beginning, convinced me that we needed a book about disaster as a historical phenomenon, not just pandemics, but all the different forms that disaster takes and how it is that we, despite becoming far more scientifically educated than our ancestors in past disasters, why it is that we don't seem to be getting that much better at dealing with them? And that's the central question of the book. So one of the fascinating things about the book is you look at how, to some extent, all disasters seem to be man-made, even the natural ones. Do you want to talk a bit about why it's a kind of false dichotomy? Because you span all sorts of incredible disasters from, you know, things which look very exogenous, like volcanoes erupting and the plague, to things which seem much more man-made. But why is that a kind of bad way of dividing the different catastrophes? I really owe this insight to Amartya Sen, the great Indian economist and, and Nobel laureate, whom I got to know in my Harvard years. And Amartya made this point about famines, famously, that famines are not natural disasters. They're really consequences of failures of systems, markets, and governments to, to solve usually localized problems of shortage. And what I try and do in Doom is to extend that 
beyond famine to cover all disasters. Now, obviously, a volcano is not a political or man-made disaster when it erupts, but it's only a disaster if there's a city right next to it. I mean, if it's an uninhabited island that blows up, that's a different matter. But one of the curious features of of our species is that we really do seem very fond of building cities next to volcanoes or on fault lines. I'm sitting not very far from one of those, San Francisco. So I think the idea of the book is that really disasters are ultimately all politically constructed, even if the initial shock is natural, just in the same way that it sends famines. They start because of some kind of crop failure. Ultimately, it's political decision-making at the top or in the middle or at the bottom that, that determines how many people die. And, and that is not ex ante predictable. And we just seen that because the same virus was kind of sweeping around the world. But in some countries like this one, half a million people died and, and counting, it's probably 600,000 as we speak. And, and in, in Taiwan, 12 people died. So it's the same virus. There has to be an explanation for these differences. And it clearly isn't you know genetic. It's, it's about policy. So you have a big theme looking at the kind of psychology of political incompetence and trying to understand how some of these bureaucratic disasters end up taking place. Do you want to talk a bit about why our political systems seem to be so bad at dealing with, with disaster? Well, I was very inspired by a book with the title The Psychology of Military Incompetence. And I thought that we needed an equivalent book or at least a chapter with the title The Psychology of Political Incompetence, because clearly an obvious story about 2020 that many people told in countless articles was that things were going terribly wrong in the United States because the president was an imbecile and they were going terribly wrong in Britain because the prime minister was a buffoon and they were going terribly wrong in Brazil because the president was, and and you know where I'm going with this, uh, same arguments being made today about India. There is a very, very strong predisposition to blame the person at the top in more or less any disaster. And that's not wrong because clearly, A, the buck stops there. That's that's the point about the top job. You are responsible. But it's also not wrong in the sense that the various leaders I've just name-checked made a great many errors, some of them egregiously stupid. However, if we walk away from the pandemic drawing the conclusion that if only someone else had been president or prime minister, if only Joe Biden had got the job a year early, we'd all be fine and nobody would have died, then we're deluding ourselves. Uh, And I think an important argument in the book is that we shouldn't just give ourselves that cop-out, that simple, facile explanation. Two reasons. One, if you look at countries that had even worse excess mortality than the US and the UK, and there are quite a few, uh, they didn't all have populist leaders. Belgium, Italy, they had higher excess mortality than the UK. They did not have populist leaders. Peru had incredibly bad excess mortality, much worse than the US. You can't really say the president was a populist. So that's the first point. The second point is that in disasters, generally, the point of failure is not at the top. I mean, the buck may stop there, but it is not ultimately Winston Churchill's fault that Singapore surrenders to an exhausted Japanese force that really it could have fought. In the same way, the Space Shuttle Challenger doesn't blow up shortly after launch in 1986 because Ronald Reagan rushed the launch. That, that's a total red herring of a story. And I was hugely influenced by Richard Feynman's great book on the Challenger disaster, in which he identifies the point of failure as being in the middle management of NASA, because the engineers knew 
there was a 1% chance the thing would blow up. But the bureaucrats turned that into one in 100,000 chance. So I'm fascinated by those points of failure that they're kind of in the obscure recesses of bureaucracies, because I think that's a part, a big part of the story of COVID. The public health bureaucracies on both sides of the Atlantic did not do their job well. And it's just too easy to pin that on presidents and prime ministers, as if, as if the president of the United States is sitting there figuring out how CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, should make testing available for a new coronavirus. I mean, that just isn't how government works, unless you inhabit some kind of cartoon version of democracy. You have this fascinating notion of the fractal geometry of disaster to kind of explain how you get these kind of organizational failures taking place at different levels of the hierarchy. Do you want to explain what that means? Well, I've always loved that expression ever since I got into to chaos theory and, and, and understood the notion that there is a fractal geometry to much in nature. And that means that however close you zoom in or however far you pan out, the shape is kind of the same. And uh, there's a fractal geometry to disaster in that a bit like Tolstoy's Happy Families, all disasters are kind of similar. They have a similar quality, whether it's the Titanic going down or the Battle of the Somme or COVID-19. There is this, first of all, this kind of moment when things start going wrong. Now, prior to that moment, you may well have been prepared, or at least you thought you were. You may well have thought about the scenario. And, and that, that's the kind of grey rhino thing where you see the disaster coming. But somehow when the disaster actually happens, pandemonium, confusion breaks out and you have two human responses, denial and hysteria. And this is sort of classic, regardless of whether it's a ship sinking or a country being hit by a novel coronavirus. And the, the systems that do well in such a scenario are the ones that keep their heads, so to speak, and react quickly to the new situation. And the ones that fail are the ones that stick to the plan that obviously isn't working and take too long to realize or admit that it isn't, it isn't working. So there is this sense that, and I wanted to capture this in the book, that, that all disasters have certain common features, regardless of whether they are man-made or natural, which I think is a false distinction, and, and regardless of scale, that the same can be true of a really small disaster. And, and if you ask yourself, because we use the word disaster very casually, ask yourself about the last disastrous thing that happened in your family life or in your private life. And, and this can be as absurd a thing as, as just a kind of you know, minor road accident or something that goes horribly wrong at home, like the bath overflows, or there's a terrible plumbing fiasco or the toaster bursts into flames. I'm struck by the fact that even in these tiny personal disasters, there's something of the Titanic or the Somme in microcosm going on. So that was an idea that really crystallized when I read Feynman's account of the Challenger shuttle disaster. Not that many people died. I mean, seven people, the crew died. That was it. Everybody else just watched it on TV and went, oh, but I think it still has that essential quality of a disaster that some people kind of knew it was going to happen and other people didn't want to face that it was going to happen. And then when it did happen, the media immediately tried to pin it on the president. It's all kind of strangely familiar, but on a relatively small scale. So your last book before this, the the Tower on the Square, was about networks and how the history of networks and hierarchies kind of provide a really fresh way of analyzing the, the last few hundreds or thousands of years. 
networks play a really important role in your accounts of disasters. Now, do you want to explain how they change the nature of catastrophe? Well, really big disasters, as opposed to localized ones, have contagion as a feature. And this is something that that explains why the biggest disasters in human history so far have, have been pandemics. The Black Death in the 1340s is a good illustration of this. We don't really know what share of humanity it killed, but I've, I've seen 30% or thereabouts as an estimate. It certainly killed a hell of a lot of people in, in, in Europe and probably comparable shares in, in Eastern Eurasia. So the key here is that there are two things you need to know in a contagion. You need to know the qualities, the properties of the pathogen itself, or if we're talking about online contagion, the meme, and you need to know the structure of the social network it attacks, because that determines how far and how rapidly it spreads. So having written The Square and the Tower, for some reason, people always call it The Tower and the Square. I must have given it the wrong title. But anyway, The Square and the Tower, I was kind of primed to understand the contagion of the sort that COVID-19 was because I'd understood the central idea that we have created the biggest network, the biggest social network, the biggest transport network that ever existed and the fastest so that once you have a contagious virus, it can get around the world incredibly quickly. And there are interesting features to this story. For example, that the, the virus has the property of a low dispersion factor, which means that a quite small proportion of the infected do most of the spreading. These are the super spreaders. But the other feature of this story is just the structure that it attacked. We had built this vast global social network that connected Wuhan to every city in the world by air transport, either directly or indirectly. And so when we let that system keep going right up until late january it was going to it was going to spread the virus everywhere and once it landed at any given airport the social networks and the transport networks emanating out from that airport would very quickly get it to uh, to all the smaller less densely populated parts of a country and so that that was for me a really crucial insight i think policymakers still need to to study network science a lot more than they do, because the countries that dealt well with this disaster, like Taiwan or South Korea, understood that they needed to use testing and contact tracing to identify the super spreaders and the people they were likely to have infected. And we never did that. We still really don't do it in the US, even although we have the technology to do it. And that's why Taiwan had just 12 deaths from COVID and we've got nearly 600,000. Building on that and sort of looking forwards, I mean, one of the, the big questions is, which people kind of look at having read all of these extraordinary accounts of, of historical disasters, which you go through at quite a pace in the book. Um, what are the disasters that we have to look forward to if we're getting ready for a kind of politics of catastrophe for the next few decades? What comes after COVID? Well, the problem about disasters is you can't predict them. And so in a way, I, I by definition, can't really answer that question. I, I can give you a menu, but I can't tell you which dishes will be served and, and when and in what quantities. Of course, we all are told to, to worry about climate change. And so the obvious answer is that the next disaster will be as a consequence of, of global warming. And I take that very seriously. There's no question that the, the worst case scenario in the intergovernmental 
panel on climate change documents has got more probable since the fifth assessment was published back in 2014. So yeah, that that's that's one way that things could get disastrous, but it's only one. And I worry a little bit that we spend an enormous amount of time at international gatherings talking about that one form of disaster and forgetting that an antibiotic resistance of uh, of bubonic plague would be a lot faster acting as a disaster than, than climate change. An earthquake on the West Coast of the United States, a really big one, would be very disastrous very fast and had, would have nothing to do with climate change. Same goes for really big increase in volcanic activity, which we've had relatively little of. There haven't been really big volcanic eruptions for a long time. The last really big one was in 1815, so more than 200 years ago. Uh, I'll keep going because the menu is a rather <laughs> terrifying one. We've got solar and stellar disruptions that could take us by surprise. And then we've got all the things that we can do to ourselves without any help from the sun or the stars. We could have a nuclear war. That's definitely not inconceivable. There are biological weapons out there being developed. We know that. And, you know, I think there's a pretty obvious disaster scenario that could play out really soon. And that would be the, the giant cyber attack that took out critical infrastructure in a major, in a major democracy. After all, if you can shut down a huge pipeline like the Colonial Pipeline this past week with a bunch of ransomware, and this is probably just some East European crooks, maybe slightly encouraged by the Russian government. I mean, think about what a really major cyber attack could do. So I think all of those things uh, are conceivable. We can't attach probabilities to them because the distribution of disasters just doesn't allow us to do that. But if we only think about one of them and only really devote our energies to preparing for one of them, and it, and it happens to be the relatively slow acting one, then I, that seems like the wrong approach to take. And my message to the world, and it's a serious message, is it's better to be generally paranoid than to be well prepared for the wrong disaster. So one of the big themes in your work uh, over the last couple of decades has been the relationship between China and America. You coined this very famous term of Chimerica, which you claim is now over, but it did capture a kind of era of, of Sino-US relations when the two seem to be bound in a very powerful symbiotic hug. And now you've been one of the, the most eloquent writers about Cold War 2.0 and how that's playing out. That's also a big theme in the book. How would you relate that to, to the kind of general thesis of your book? Yeah, Chimerica seems a long time ago now. That was really <laughs> the early 2000s. I think that, that word was coined by me and Moritz Schulrich in 2007. And I think Cold War II has definitely taken over and, and it's been going for a while now, even if we didn't quite want to admit that to ourselves. I think the pandemic was a moment of truth, a moment of revelation for many people about the nature of the Chinese regime, not just because the beginnings are a lot like a kind of super Chernobyl, the, you know, the cover-ups and the lies, but also because subsequently the Chinese foreign ministry was so shrill with its wolf warrior diplomacy in trying to bend the narrative and and, and propagate the obvious lie that the thing had not originated in, in China. So Looking at, at surveys of, of opinion, the Chinese government has become much, much less popular, not only in the US, but in Europe. In fact, some of the swings in sentiment have been greater in Europe. And that's important because I think prior to 2020, you had the sense that Europe was kind of willing to be a non-aligned uh, player in Cold War II. And that feels less plausible as a course of, of policy now. 
I think many people wrongly jumped to the conclusion last year that China was doing really well and showing us how it was done and we were doing really badly and it was all over for the US and the Asian century had officially kicked off. I thought that was a very premature and and wrong conclusion because I think China did itself great damage last year. And I don't think we fully appreciate the damage it's done internally to itself with the way that it handled the the pandemic. And at the same time, I think we underestimated the ability of the US to recover from an initially disastrous response. This is Pearl Harbor syndrome. You know, you start off terribly, but then, you know, by year two, you've got the best vaccines and you're rolling them out far faster than anybody else, except maybe Israel and the UK. So I, I think the, the geopolitics of disaster is a really interesting subject because a lot of people got this wrong last year and failed to see that China had sort of self-harmed and that the US would almost certainly bounce back from its, its shockingly bad initial Response. And I think the most important thing, and it's highly relevant to what you do, Mark, is that Europe has changed its mind or is changing its mind about China to the point that I'm very struck by how much more critical European leaders are being of the Chinese regime. And it's a strange state of affairs when it's only Viktor Orban who stands in the way (laughs) of a particular condemnation of of Chinese policy because he's the one taking the Chinese vaccines and and other support. You've thought more than anyone else about the uses and abuses of history in terms of understanding the world that we're in at the moment. If, if we are really in Cold War II, what kind of lessons do you think we can learn both kind of generally, but also for the different players? Because, you know, one of the reasons why Cold War II is quite attractive meme in America is because Cold War I kind of ended all right <laughs> for the US. In Europe, it's it's more kind of complicated because on the one hand, there are all these debates about European sovereignty uh, and European strategic autonomy. And that's the one thing which Europe didn't have in in the Cold War. The Cold War analogy is helpful. Apart from anything else, you realise that that Europeans have been saying exactly these things for decades, that the debate about Europe's relationship with the United States was exactly the same in the 1960s when Kissinger was writing about it. It was all burden sharing and you guys don't do your share. That was the American line. And the Europeans like, we want to be autonomous. De Gaulle, you could more or less copy and paste some of what De Gaulle was saying in the 60s. And and it's there in Macron's uh, speeches and interviews today. So I don't know how many Europeans are aware of this, but there's been almost no progress in this debate since I was born in 1964. I think that the key to this analogy is you got to learn to stop worrying and love the Cold War, because although we have negative associations with the Cold War, I mean, many Americans immediately think Vietnam, or they think of CIA dirty tricks. Uh, it's not like the Cold War has an unblemished reputation. Or people in Europe, especially I think in the UK, think, oh, we lived under the shadow of the mushroom cloud, you know, the shadow of Armageddon. In truth, Cold War is a much preferable thing to hot war. And it's a success story if we can keep the US-China relationship to Cold War. This is one of the points Graham Allison's book, the the Thucydides trap book makes, Destined for War. I mean, Graham argues that if you look at all the moments when an incumbent power was challenged by a rising power, mostly they end in hot war. And the Cold War is one of the rare occasions that didn't happen. And I think you can have Cold War too. By the way, it's Cold War II with Roman numerals, not Cold War 2.0, because the analogy here is with World War I and World War II. And we've had Cold War I, so we should expect Cold War II. It's kind of historically plausible that there would be another one. I mean, the key benefit of Cold War 
too, is to avoid a hot war between the United States and China. And I think that's the way you think about it. And it's possible to have that Cold War without some of the nastiest stuff that went on in Cold War One. We don't need, for example, to have proxy wars like in Korea or Vietnam. We don't, I think, don't need to engage in nuclear brinkmanship. So there's a possibility that you could have a, a kind of cleaner Cold War II in which it's essentially a technological competition. I think one of the reasons why um, Cold War One was cold, though, was because you could have these proxy wars. It was a way of letting off steam and containing it because we had very little direct contact with each other. That's obviously quite different today where we're completely bound together in this umbilical way, which you sort of described. And, and so how much decoupling needs to take place in order for, for it to be cold rather than for there to be a sort of perpetual attempt to tweak each other's noses and, and to weaponize every single point of contact between, uh, between the different blocks? That's, that's a great question, Mark, because the, the defining difference, the obvious difference is just the much, much greater interpenetration, okay. the fact that there are just hundreds of thousands of Chinese nationals in the US studying or working. And, and that just was never the case with Soviet citizens in, in Cold War One. I. I mean, the proxy wars are a somewhat different question. I don't think that the Chinese are going to do the things that, that Stalin did. Uh, they don't look like they have a huge appetite for invading places. Maybe Taiwan is the exception to that rule. But it yeah. does seem to me that the proxy wars were driven by the Soviet hunger to acquire territory. And and that without that sort of sense that they were going to grab one country after another, there wouldn't have been wars in Korea or indeed in, in Vietnam. So I think we can imagine a Cold War without proxy wars quite easily. What we what we think we get is a is Cold War II is just going to have rampant espionage. In Cold War One, there weren't that many spies and they were kind of cool. And so James Bond and John Le Carre and all that. Everybody is kind of spying at this point, as far as I can see. There's so much spying, some of it online and some of it on the ground, that espionage is just normal, like the air we breathe. There are, there are just so many attempts to breach the security of American companies by the Chinese and by their Russian pals. That I think that the defining characteristic of, of Cold War II is the permanent state of vast espionage, and that extends into cyber warfare as well as information warfare. So those things went on in Cold War One. I. I mean, the Soviets love to try and seed Western media with fake news, but they're just happening on a much, much larger scale today. So that that's the way I think about this. And so when people say to me, oh, well, I think we can really avoid Cold War Two. We should have co-opetition. I look at them as like, do you realize that as far as the Chinese are concerned, Cold War II has been going on for some years? And you're, you're just in denial about this because they're not, they're not interested in co-opetition unless it's a way of making espionage and, and cyber attacks even easier. This is pretty big project and, and, and takes you into all sorts of different areas. What, what's your next kind of big enterprise going to be after this? Are you, is it the next volume of the Kissinger biography or... Absolutely. I've flown at 35,000 feet writing The Square and the Tower and this, and now it's time to, to go back down to the human scale of biography, not least because I think it's extremely helpful when one thinks about Cold War to look at Cold War One and look closely at what happened in the late 60s and 70s. The transition from, as it were, high Cold War to detente is extremely interesting to me because I think we might well go there to detente quite quickly. At least that's how the Biden administration folks seem to me to be thinking about it. So no, I've I've got uh, my mountains of old documents 
documents to plow through to reconstruct what happened between probably 69 and 89. I think that's really what volume two will cover, i.e. that that phase of, of Cold War One. Wow, fantastic. I very much look forward to reading that. We've got one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. Obviously, every self-respecting person who wants to understand a pleasant present has to buy uh, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. But what else is on your bookshelf at the moment, Neil? Well, I've recently read two great books that illuminate aspects of American foreign policy. Robert Zellick's book, America in the World, which is a kind of complete history of American diplomacy from the beginning to the very recent past. And that's terrific. And then Philip Zellico has written a, a marvellous book entitled The Road Less Travel about Woodrow Wilson's failure to end World War I in 1916. And, and both books are, are, are wonderful in their different ways. One is macro, the other's the other's micro. But um, I, I derived enormous pleasure from reading the both and learnt a lot, which is the thing that I really value about a book. Fantastic. So we'll put links up to all those publications on our website, as well as to Neil's book at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours, or hopefully giving us a positive review and rating on whatever platform you've used to download the podcast on. But for now, from Neil Ferguson and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal. And our editor this week is Annie Syshek. Mm-hmm.